Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. One of the challenges of traveling is managing your money. If you're tired of getting crushed by bank fees and exchange rates, you need to check out wise.com. I have been a customer for over 10 years. This is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. It's been essential for me first as a traveler, then later as a digital nomad and an expat living abroad, running a business from around the world. You get one account, which allows you to send, spend, and convert money internationally, all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. You can join 16 million customers, learn how the Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to Wise for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at nissanusa.com. You have to talk about normal life just as what it is that you gain, like the gains and losses of leaving it behind, because it's really a mistake to pretend that you don't lose anything becoming a traveler, a full-time traveler or becoming nomadic because you will get homesick. You will feel your relationships change. You might miss your first funeral back home. Uh, I think a lot of people who talk about it have never moved past their first impressions with the lifestyle. Like they haven't been in a hospital bed by themselves in a foreign country or missed a funeral or had anything, had their, you know, their first friend group get together without them because they're not a part of it anymore. These are moments that might seem like you don't, you, I don't know, you don't take account of them until they've happened to you or you've seen it happen to someone else and you realize, yeah, normal life has a lot, a lot of benefits. That is today's guest, Kayla Erig, kicking off choosing a life of travel week here on the Zero to Travel podcast. And what better way to do it than with some real talk, of course, talking about normal life there. In that clip, we're referring to a life where you're not traveling full time. Of course, you're giving things up. We're not just going to cover the rainbows and the unicorns here of travel. We like to get into the deep conversations, as you know. So if you are considering choosing a life of travel for any period of time, perhaps now or in the near future, stay tuned for the next three episodes as you're going to hear stories from people who have done just that. And today we're focusing on the digital nomad lifestyle where you're traveling and working And I think there's something really for anybody here who is either living that lifestyle or thinking about it or maybe just curious, (laughs) you're digital nomad curious, you're going to find value in this interview. We talk about lifestyle deflation, building reliable income, ways you can keep travel interesting when you're doing it long term, also ways you can save money on accommodations, a whole bunch of stuff packed in here. Plus, I'm going to share an easy way to start a life of travel and give a shout out to a listener in this community who's hitting the road. And this serves as a reminder to be wary of the cusp. You'll hear what that's all about and much more in today's episode right now. So buckle up, strap in. Thanks for being here. And welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey, what's up? It's Jason here with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is 
is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. So excited to kick off choosing a life of travel week. And when I started traveling, I didn't know I was choosing a life of travel until I got on the road and realized I love this. This is something I can keep doing. And there's a little lesson in there I'm going to tie in on the back end of this interview. I want to get to the interview first, uh, where I'm going to share an easy way to kickstart a life of travel. And I want to give a shout out to a listener, as I mentioned. Don't forget, before we dive into this conversation with Kayla, who has been doing this for quite a while, wrote this whole book on how to be a digital nomad, uh, you can find her work over at writingfromnowhere.com. We'll link up to that and the book. And one of the things she talks about in this conversation is the first digital nomad who I'd never heard about before. We're going to have to drag him on the show at some point. He was doing the digital nomad thing in 1983. What? I, I never knew. So some fun stuff going on here. Don't forget, if you want more fun stuff, speaking of that, zerototravel.com slash newsletter. You can sign up over there and get the free weekly newsletter. Would love to welcome you into the community there. Now, without further ado, let's slip and slide into this conversation. I'll see you on the other side, my friend. Cheers. Kayla Eirig, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Ah, I can't believe I'm on the side of the podcast after years (laughs) of listening. (laughs) Ah, that's, thank you very much. That's so kind. And while you have put in a lot of work into this book, How to Become a Digital Nomad, which we're going to talk about today. Bold statement. It's like, this book is going to take you there. But uh, <laughs> but you cover so much in it. I mean, I went I went through it uh, in preparation for this interview. And, you know, digital nomadism, one of the hot topics in general and a big topic on this show. So uh, I know you have some, you've done some research and we got some history and things to chat about today anyway. Uh, but I know you're a little jet lagged, right? That's what you said. Yeah, eight hour time change. And then I feel like to add insult to injury, I went from like 100 degrees Fahrenheit tropics to cold rain. I bought a sweater my first day back. So <laughs> on top of the jet lag, it's also like, where did the sun go? Is it, <laughs> is it there at all? <laughs> Tell everybody where you were and where you are. I spent just spent 10 weeks in Mexico and in the Yucatan Peninsula. And now I'm back in the Netherlands, which is where I've has been my home base for the last five years. So um, we're just visiting family doing some life admin. And then we're gonna my husband and I are fully nomadic and we're gonna keep going. We're gonna go over land to Turkey next from the Netherlands. So through Poland and Romania and kind of just heading down that way and seeing some places that uh, we've never seen before. Bert Jan, is that his name? Yeah, Bert Jan. Yeah, close. Bert Jan. Yeah, he's, he's Dutch. Dutch. Yes. Yeah. So, is it your? You guys maintain an apartment there? Or? We don't actually. We're house sitting right now. This is my sister in law's apartment. So we okay. got rid of everything five months ago, and Bert Jan downsized to five boxes of b- almost all books, and I left a suitcase in his parents' house in storage with a few things for the next chapter of life, where whenever that is. But yeah, we've just been drifting around for the last five months and loving it. Honestly, it's been really, well, we worked towards this for a long time. It was delayed because of the pandemic. So being fully nomadic was something I was really ready for. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm 
definitely want to hear more about your journey to to becoming nomadic and yeah but uh, in the book i was reading about how bert jan was when you bert jan sorry i should just gotta get more dutch with it when you met him he was like a totally offline dude right i mean he was like a guy that like he worked in real life and he in real life it's so weird because we have these two worlds now we have the digital world and we have the real world which is the actual world but then we have this whole other digital world but anyway he you said he was the kind of guy that would just like he'd be working you know type of job in person and he'd come home and read books and he was really never online or anything like that he goes from that to becoming a digital nomad so i think maybe parts of his story might help illustrate some of the points we're going to make today. Oh, it was a rough journey for him. He did really well. But I mean, he didn't have a laptop when we met. He used Internet Explorer still. Yeah. Okay. It was 2017. <laughs> I mean, it, that oh, says it all, folks. <laughs> that does say it all. And then to, to illustrate that point farther, he he specifically said, give me one reason Google Chrome is better than Internet Explorer. I felt like the fact that you brought that up shows how removed you are from technology here. He didn't have Wi-Fi whenever I moved in with him. 2017, Wi-Fi was normal for like 10 years. He just didn't uh, No, He's lived in an apartment with guitars and books stacked up in every corner. And then he traveled as much as he could. And he was a high school English teacher. So he was basically living my dream life <laughs> up until the high school teacher part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Guitars, books, and traveling as much as he... I mean, that doesn't sound too bad. No, and you can't say anything <laughs> bad about that because I think we would all agree if we could all retreat offline in ways that we would feel our mental health improve. So there was wisdom to that, but he, and then we met and he had never, I don't know if he had ever met anyone who was working online. So we met in Guatemala in 2017 and we were both traveling um, independently. And he, I remember the moment we met, he said, well, I, he, he said, I don't have to answer an email for six months. Like I don't have to be anywhere for six months. And he was so happy saying that. And then I told him, oh, I work Monday to Friday. And he was like, what? <laughs> he was, I think he was legitimately appalled. Um, he said, well, doesn't that ruin travel? And uh, he was on a very different journey. And then whenever he learned that I could travel as long as I wanted, because I still had income, that's whenever he became curious. And uh, then of course, he joined me a few years later working online and we share our business now. And uh, he's come a long way. Yeah. Well, you bring up a good point. Does it ruin travel in some ways at some points? Oh, it's hard because you need to balance. It's all about equilibrium between travel and work. But like equilibrium is like defined as like the balance of opposing forces. And I think it's hard to like, it's important to recognize that travel and work are opposing forces in their nature. So whenever people start out to work online and travel and they think, gosh, it's really hard. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. Like I always tell people like it is that hard. So whenever it goes badly, it, it's just because you're doing it. You're not doing it badly. You're not not cut out for it. That it is extremely difficult and it can ruin travel. I think I can, we can all look back and think of something that like a moment, a place that we were at and we did let work ruin our travel experience. Yeah. I've been fortunate to have extensive experience with both of those lifestyles and I can definitely... I mean, we could do probably a multiple episode series on that. But uh, since you brought it up, I think, well, I think that's going to be something that sort of bubbles up to the surface as we go through this conversation. I think a good place to start is your journey, because I know you said in the book you were at one point, I would call this the, the decision point for a lot of people, right? 
where you said, quote, my self-diagnosis was that I was sleepwalking through life and despite having done no solo international travel, was convinced that traveling was the cure. I'm just wondering what the process for you was to coming to that conclusion because you said it right there in the sentence you had a self-diagnosis, but that must have mean you were you were going through a diagnosis period. And, you know, maybe fishing a bit for some advice here for anybody that's in in that modality, let's say. Yeah. I became obsessed with this concept, with this question that like, wasn't life supposed to be more fun? And that for me is what kind of, it was like that breaking point of where I had, like my life was very good. I had a, a nice job. I was living alone in Chicago. I just moved to Chicago. Um, I had like nothing was wrong in life, but I had this like nagging feeling that life wasn't any fun. And I thought, you know, it was supposed to be, uh, more enjoyable than, than it was. And that is, was for me the first like fragment away from normalcy. And then I spent about six months obsessing over that question and asking colleagues and going to like going in Chicago, there's this big event every year called the Ideas Festival. And I went, somebody got working me a ticket. And I sat there watching a panel of people discussing their passions. And I felt like, I just felt the incredible contrast that I wasn't passionate about what I was doing. And I, I don't know why travel stood out as the answer. I don't know if anyone can really articulate that well, why travel sucks us in the way it does. But I thought I would be really living if I was on the road. And that just became the solution I was obsessed with. And yeah, I had never really been anywhere besides Canada and the Bahamas and from the US. And uh, I was not, yeah, I I researched a lot. I, I had no idea what I was doing. It was not a big plan. It was not like, this is the plan to do this. I just thought, I don't want to feel like I'm missing out on life here anymore. It's too, time is too precious. Yeah. What year was this? This was 2016 to 2017. Okay. It's interesting that all of that exploration came from that single question and, you know, being exposed to things like the Idea Festival, like just kind of in opening yourself up to trying to find the answer to that question, that leading to travel for you. I mean, I I agree with you, like why it's not like, I don't think personally that travel is the answer for everybody, but for travelers or probably people listening to this show, you have some internal soul calling that's telling you you need to travel for whatever reason. And maybe it's good to listen to that. (laughs) I think you have to sometimes just like, you don't need to explain yourself to everyone that became, that's something I touched on in the book as well. Like people will ask you, well, what's so bad about life here? And those are the conversations that you don't have to have, frankly, because it's never about something being so bad. It's about being drawn forward. I think for most people. Mm. Yeah. You said the nagging feeling and that, that to me is a intuition speaking in a way, right? It's like, because there, you know, if you're, if your practical mind is taking a look at it and you're saying, I'm sure, you know, you can go back and forth between your intuitive mind, your practical mind saying, well, I have all these things. I should be happy. I should be more content. I don't want to be somebody that's uh, running on the hedonic treadmill, always trying to chase happiness and, and not just being able to find peace with where I'm at right now. But then there's the nagging intuitive side that might be like, yeah, but, but there is, something more for you for on your particular life journey. And I think that's where you have to lean into your inner wisdom, right? Like you could read all the blogs and the podcasting, you know, but like you, yeah, how do you lean into your inner wisdom there? How did you do it to the point where you 
we're actually able to cut the cord from your quote unquote normal life, which we're going to talk about in a minute because I know you discussed that in a book in a way that I really appreciated. Um, but how did you cut the cord there and make the final decision? I was so scared. I was like obsessed with the feeling that I would regret not traveling, but I was so afraid. I was listening to podcasts. I found the Location Indie podcast that was actually very formative in me quitting my job and moving out of Chicago. I found people online. I was following Instagram accounts, YouTube channels. I was this like enormous sponge, desperate sponge to feel confident enough to make this change. And I just was certain that I would regret not doing it. I, once I realized that, I guess for me, that was a very formative question. Will I regret, specifically regret not making this move? And the answer was yes. And at that point, I just had to push myself to not be too afraid. And I actually put a little post-it note up on my wall I had like my backpack that I bought. I didn't have any travel gear. And I put it on a little post-it note that said, don't be scared next to the backpack. And then one day, whenever I was feeling really scared, I moved the backpack over a few inches and covered it up (laughs) because it was holding up such a mirror (laughs) to how nervous I was. And uh, I'd also never really been outside the US. So like the language barrier issue, like there were so many fears I had then that just came from not be having experience with travel that I thought, are these, is this my gut trying, is this trying to keep me safe? Is this my intuition keeping me safe? And I couldn't really articulate what was coming from where, but thankfully I heard so many success stories and I kept hearing over and over again, no one regrets traveling. And that Thank goodness for those people online, these people, anonymous strangers online who gave me these pep talks to bolster me and the Location Indie podcast and all that encouragement. Uh, I I can never like really articulate how much came from that encouragement yeah. from others. Amazing. Yeah, it's the regret question such a great way to push yourself over the edge one way or the other, right? Uh, maybe the answer is no. Like, no, I won't regret this. I'm I'm cool. And then you don't do the thing, whatever it is. But if you if you get a strong feeling that you're going to be regretting this later in life or maybe not so much later in life, then yeah, that, that question is a really powerful one to kind of push over the edge. I like the post-it note idea. It's just kind of like staring at you in the face saying, hey, you know, here's your biggest fear. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to reassure you with my little post-it note message here in my soft yellow paper. (laughs) It was like a Pinterest board threw up on my life. There was like (laughs) reminders everywhere on my planner, on my phone background. Uh, It was like probably like borderline embarrassing how much encouragement I needed. And then whenever I was giving my notice at my job to quit, I was so nervous. I was sweating and the bottom of my glasses fogged up. I was sweating so badly. Like, I can't tell you how, like, I feel like people hear these stories and they think, oh, it wasn't that bad. And I I really want people to know it was pathetic. Like, it was a little bit desperate. And uh, you don't need to be confident. You know, it's okay if you're struggling to confidently uh, move forward. It's not a sign. I kept asking myself, is this a sign? And the answer was no. It's just fear. And like that's what you fine. were saying when you, yeah, when you came in to quit, you were a total nervous wreck and, and that's, that was okay. You weren't like strolling in confidently. Like I made my decision. This is my new life. And you know, I have no worries whatsoever and I'm moving forward. It's like, it is reassuring to hear. Cause you're now one of those people sharing that somebody else listening might be like feeling the same way 
that you were feeling when you were listening to these types of stories and things like that. So kudos for paying it forward. It's a full your, circle uh, moment. <laughs> honesty. Yeah, that's great. Um, you talk about just right in the beginning of the book on page six, you talk about normal life as nothing to be negative about that it's not a problem and acting like one philosophy means you are really living and others mean you're not. And, you know, I appreciate that because I feel like that's a big problem in, uh, let's say the, okay, I'm not putting you in the um, selling uh, how to like the digital nomad to the digital nomad lifestyle thing. It's just that the book is called How to Be a Digital Nomad. So. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I appreciate that you were up front with this because I think this is an important point because it's it's another fear-based way of kind of selling, right? Like this isn't a lifestyle that's for everybody. We'll talk about that. This isn't something that either you or I or anybody are, are saying that this is what you should do with your life. Yeah, I mean, you could speak more to this, this idea of, yeah, why did you take the time to highlight this point about a uh, quote unquote normal life? And and you can just articulate it better than I can, I'm sure, because you wrote it, but. Normal life gets such a bad rap in, on social media. I'm going to say on TikTok because that's where I see the worst of it, but I know this isn't specific to the platform or the people there, but I've seen influencers Digital nomad influencers go on on TikTok about normal life is the matrix and you have to leave the matrix or you're living in this state of ignorance and they are living in a state of ignorance because like, let's just boil down and pretend that normal life, like, let's say it is as bad as they're saying, you're going to end up back there. No one is going to, almost no one is going to be nomadic forever. So I just don't see the point in negatively speaking about it. I think it's very important to talk about this opportunity to work online and go where you where you want. It's important to speak about it in unpretentious tones and understand that you're not running away from normalcy. And honestly, the digital nomad movement is so robust. You're just joining a new movement. You're not like breaking out this like rare little wildflower that bloomed on the mountaintop. You're joining a new group of people and you don't have, it doesn't have to be so right and wrong because there, there is no right and wrong on a, that level in any way. And I always say that you have to talk about normal life just as what it is that you gain, like the gains and losses of leaving it behind, because it's really a mistake to pretend that you don't lose anything becoming a travel, a full-time traveler or becoming nomadic because you will get homesick. You will feel your relationships change. You might miss your first funeral back home. Uh, I think a lot of people who talk about it have never moved past their first impressions with the lifestyle. Like they haven't been in a hospital bed by themselves in a foreign country or missed a funeral or had anything, had their, you know, their first friend group get together without them because they're not a part of it anymore. You know, these are moments that might seem like, you don't, you, I don't know, you don't take account of them until they've happened to you or you've seen it happen to someone else and you realize, yeah, normal life has a lot, a lot of benefits. It's not black and white. Were those moments that you've experienced? Some of those you just highlighted? Yeah. I mean, I remember going to the hospital alone, taking myself to the hospital and not speaking the language and doing a whole appointment through Google Translate. Like the first time that happened to me, I've only been alone at the hospital with that once, but I've been in the hospital now in three countries, four countries, if you conclude the US. And that's not an experience that anyone shares. Uh, and it's, it's, it's stressful. It's scary. And in those moments, you would pay any amount of money to be home getting the care that you are familiar with. And um, even if it's not like life or death, 
it's still just maybe very uncomfortable. Like in the Netherlands, whenever you uh, are in the hospital, they don't always give you gowns. So like they will have you walk naked from like one testing room to another one. Yes. It completely naked. They're like, just go down the hall and turn left. And you're, it's so uncomfortable. Like there are a lot of levels of discomfort that you experience um, as a, someone in another country or just being alone, just being alone in your own country and not having anyone to show up for you is scary. And yeah, I've missed funerals and, uh, I know my relationship with, I mean, my friends back home, I mean, those relationships do not stay the same whenever you're gone for an extended period of time and you gain a lot, but you also lose things. I think it's very important to not pretend like you're throwing out the garbage with normal life and moving on to greener pastures. Cause you're not, you're no one is, I don't think. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by us bank. Recently I went out for tacos and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go! To learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten-path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why. We're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Now, back to the show. Your point about, you know, eventually you go back to quote unquote normal life. That's true. I'm everybody I've known, you know, myself included, that's been nomadic ends up at some point back. I mean, there are very few that just keep going and going and going for decades. And even they will, I think, eventually find a place. And I, I just love the way you share that and how you're really upfront with that. Cause I do think that's really important to frame up this conversation in a way that makes sense to everybody and is fair, you know, really quite frankly, is a fair way to address this 
topic of digital nomadism. You know, skipping ahead to almost the end of the book, which almost ties in, I guess it does tie in with what we're talking about today. You have a section called digital nomadism. Is it a lifestyle or a phase? This is on that subject, even though it comes at the end of the book. I was just curious uh, what your thoughts are on that, because I think as we go through this, let's let's get into like the lifestyle and talk about the good, bad, and the ugly and some of these questions before we get some more tips on how to kind of actually make the leap. Yeah. Well, is it a lifestyle? For me, it is for now, but... I would never be so bold as to say that I know what the future holds. And um, I've slipped in and out of being fully nomadic whenever I needed to. I became, I had a home base in the Netherlands for years and traveled that way. That's not being fully nomadic. Um, I don't think that there needs to be any sort of like badge. I think people can feel a little, there's a little bit of ego sometimes about who's gone the longest without paying an electric bill or something or having a permanent address. And I don't feel any of that personally. I think that that can all go out the window. But I think for most people, it's going to be a drifting in between. And the skills are here to stay. The skills of being able to make your own money online and being able to choose when you work, that is here. I think if you if that suits you, then that will stay with you for life. I think a lot like your work, you don't need to be traveling out of a back, living out of a backpack to still be a part of what this, the opportunity, you're still taking part in the opportunity. And I feel like that's what we should be talking about even more. Like in the movement, it's not about travel. Like that's the micro that you're able to travel, but the macro is the amount of opportunity at your fingertips with your computer. And that is like the biggest gift any of us could really have. We've talked a bit about the funerals you've missed and some of the hard parts. If if you have any more to share around the good, bad, and ugly of the lifestyle, I'd love to hear it if anything jumps out. I know we've covered a bunch of it already, but if anything pops to mind... Yeah, I would say the biggest gift for in my life has been the ability to say yes. I became kind of obsessed with a quote from Bill Murray whenever I was in that first year of traveling. And he said, be available for life to happen. And that was the phase of life where I had met Barry Young and um, he had a family crisis back home and had to cut his trip short. So he was on like a shorter, he was on a six month trip and I was open-ended and he was going back to the Netherlands all of a sudden. And I was able to say yes and go with him. And I ended up getting Dutch nationality. I now have dual citizenship. I have EU citizenship, which is really coveted. Um, That opportunity directly stems from the ability to say yes and figure out the rest. As long as you can make money and support yourself, it's just amazing. Like the places you're going to end up and, or I, I remember at one point I was working, I was in the hospital with my best friend as she gave birth to twins. She's a single mom and I got to be her birth partner and watch two lives under this world. It was just wild. And then while she, everyone was sleeping, I was catching up on emails, sleeping in the chair next to her. And those are just places I ended up in places that I could have never, ever said yes to with the nine to five. And that to me, I'm as grateful for all of that, if not more so than the travel, because you only go to Machu Picchu for a day or go wherever to these like bucket list moments, but you live your life being able to say yes every day, whenever you work online. And that is like the highest of the high for me in terms of yeah highs and lows. What have been some of the travel highs for you? You just threw out a Machu Picchu. Is that something yeah. you've done or what, are, what were some of those moments, those peak travel moments for you on the journey? 
Machu Picchu was a big one. Um, I was there on New Year's Day, which was a cool way to, we said, uh, we, my husband and I were there on the first, our first New Year's together, we did Machu Picchu. And I said, we should go to a new country every year for New Year's. And actually six years in a row, and we still have been in a new country every year <laughs> for New Year's. Not new to us, but new for New Year's. We have yet to repeat a country. So that's been a fun tradition. And um being able to backpack through Latin America was really special and just kind of drifting around. I don't have a lot of big bucket lists. Like I was dying to see, you know, like Colca Canyon and I got to see that. But for me, like waking up and like running and jumping on a, a chicken bus in El Salvador and Guatemala, being able to like those moments, the day to day, I feel like there have been so many things that like, those are what stand out to me more than the, than the peaks. But Machu Picchu was special and seeing a lot of Europe, like being and finding myself in Rome and Athens and kind of just like happening there because, you know, we're flexible enough to travel slowly over land. And I try to avoid flying. I don't really like to fly. Um, it's kind of those day to day and maybe it's a little bit boring, but the day to day things for me were much more spectacular. <laughs> and so how many years has it been now, I guess, since 2017? Is that yeah, it's been six years of being abroad. And I've visited the US, of course, you know, but I've never lived there again. I've always been a digital nomad or backpacker or an expat. Yeah, it feels surreal. <laughs> but you're obviously passionate about enough about digital nomadism to write a whole book about it. Where does that come from? I just feel like the opportunity is so special and people think it's really hard to become a digital nomad. And I should preface this by saying that I did not pitch the book. A publisher, like a publishing house, reached out to me and offered me a book deal. And I was already really passionate about the topic and I love talking about it and I love meeting people. And um, it's all, it, was, it was very much a passion. I never saw it as something to like, quote, you know, capitalize on. And uh, whenever they offered me the book deal and expressed why they asked me, you know, I thought that it would be, it, it would be a shame to turn down an opportunity like that. So I said yes to writing the book and I was really nervous about not doing it justice. I know I didn't like wake up one morning and think I'm the best person to write this book. I'm going to write this incredible resource because of all my experience. I was really aware that I have not experienced, you know, I mean, I've, I've experienced enough to write a book, but I, I was really wondering, have I experienced enough to, to write a good book, you know, or a great book? I, I was very, I, I didn't have this big ego attached to it. If anything, I was pretty terrified, which is why I interviewed so many people. And I wanted, to, I decided to make it the focus of the book on not about my experience and how to learn from it. Cause a lot of resources out there follow that. I did this. Here's how you can too. But I made it more about the movement. That's why I like found the original, the first digital nomad. And I interviewed digital nomads from five decades and followed their story and told their stories. And I wanted it to be about the movement more, much more than about my experience. And I hope that comes through to readers. Yeah. Well, I mean, you also have six years of experience, which is quite a lot. So yeah, it's not nothing. Don't, don't sell yourself short, Kayla. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, <laughs> well, you mentioned five decades and that people are probably like, what? This is a new thing. But you mentioned this guy, Stephen Roberts who's in your book, The First Digital Nomad, or you're calling him, I guess you've, I don't know how you tracked him down as the first digital nomad, or maybe one of the first, at least a pioneer in the movement. Can you tell the story of his, you know, journey? Because it seems almost surreal when I got into it. Yeah, it's, 
It's very easy to see it as like this, this movement is new, but 1983 yeah. was the first. That 83. Was 1983. Like I've 83. Met- I mean, people are like, what? I've met people <laughs> who are like, this movement is ridiculous and temporary. And now I can look them in the eyes and say, this movement is older than you. <laughs> Anyone born after that. Yeah. Steven was in his, I think he was 30. I'm not sure, but he was living in suburban Ohio. And he said that he was struggling with this question of if you grow, um, is growing up is losing the spark just an, an inevitable side effect of growing up. And he decided to fight it. And he thought he decided to try to make a life entirely out of passions. And his two big passions were computer technology, which was in its infancy at the time and cycling distance cycling. So he got, uh, it was the very first personal computer. So this is why I feel confident calling him the first one because he did, he set out being nomadic the year, like right whenever the personal portable computer was released. And he had built many of his own computers already. One of them is in the computer history, computer science history museum. One of his, the, his first computer is in a museum. <laughs> uh, he was at the very forefront of this movement. And with the first portable computer, it was like the Radio Shack 1000, I think is the term. Um, he went cycling and he did this for 10 years with his bike in a tent and solar panels and Wi-Fi didn't exist. Instead of using Wi-Fi or internet at all, he would, it was called an acoustic coupler. He would put money in a payphone and then put suction cups on the end of the payphone. And then he would type, and I'm sure I'm butchering the explanation of this, but it would kind of like Morse code the words to a fax machine that would print out his writing. And then he had a secretary in Ohio who like held up his guys that he was really there and nobody knew he was traveling. I mean, it was all over the news. Like new, uh, he's had interviews in so many languages, TV crews from other countries, magazines. He sent me pictures of like Japanese magazines covering him. And he said like, I still have yet to, to read it, <laughs> but, uh, it looks flattering, I guess, you know, uh, it was really got a lot of attention. It's actually how he told his parents. He said he didn't call up his parents and tell them he just cut out a magazine article and mailed it to them, <laughs> which is an, it's like a mic drop, a way to tell your family that you're going to go live on your bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Total mic drop. Uh, I read on Wikipedia that he, his butt, you know, I mean, it's funny just to think about how this kind of illustrates the point of how easy it is nowadays. I'm not saying easy to earn like a stable income. We'll talk about that later. But the technology that's at our fingertips, the ability to do all this stuff remotely is, of course, easier than ever. And at least according to his Wikipedia page, he had $300,000 worth of equipment on his bike, you know, the satellite email retrieval and this mobile amateur radio thing. I don't know, some paging system. I don't, I don't know. I just read it quickly, but I saw that number and it jumped out. And we certainly don't need $300,000 worth of equipment to conduct business nowadays <laughs> remotely. <No. laughs> Our smartphones have more capabilities than his computer did. And it was state of the art. It was also technology that nobody had seen before. Like he said that people would come up to him constantly. Every time he went into a restaurant or a gas station to buy a drink, he would come out and there were people huddled around his bike. And he even printed out the FAQs and laminated it. And he would put it on his bike seat and then go into the restaurant <laughs> Because he attracted so much attention. And one day, 
uh, he was working on his on the payphone typing, and the cops pulled up, and they told him. I think he said he was in Arkansas, and he they said we've had people all day calling us. What are you doing? And he, <laughs> all day people were calling the police because he looked so strange, and he just laughed as he told me these stories. And uh, I think that they saw passion. Okay, in that day specifically, people were concerned. What is this guy doing on the phone? But I think people have always been attracted to the, what he's doing because it's so yeah, the technology. No one had ever seen it before, but he is one of the most. I mean, his his goal was to create a life entirely out of passions, and you don't have to talk to him for very long to feel that come through and who he is. Yeah, yeah, that's so cool. What does it take to travel and make a reliable income? I mentioned the income thing. You know, the technology is easy. We can buy a laptop. We can get the smartphone. We can we have the apps and the things and the cloud and blah, blah, blah. But how do you make the money mm-hmm. <laughs> reliably? I think you have to learn constantly. I know maybe that sounds like a cliche, but like if you look at my, if I were to like, parallel that to my own experience like what I was doing I had to like my my work has changed radically I started freelance writing and I'm still freelance writing now I took a big break in the middle in the last six years where I didn't freelance write but now with AI and I mean you're never done you can't just say I have the skill like even if you have a skill that translates really easily like you're a coder and you can't just say I'm a coder I have the skill I'm good you have to really adapt and keep learning. And that's also what makes your rates go up is if you're freelancing, you become more valuable that way. And I've seen a lot of people say that their businesses failed or that they blame something else. Like they don't say failed, but I've seen this and they, they just haven't, I think a lot of people, if you drill down, they haven't really adapted or learned that much. Like they can't tell you where it went wrong or they can't tell you, uh, why their business isn't making more money. And I feel like you're never going to succeed. You need to be very entrepreneurial and you have to really reflect constantly and learn constantly. Like I would, rec- I would tell everyone, like you should be listening to at least one podcast a week, at least one about your field to keep advancing and keep learning and stay in the know. And I think that's where a lot of people fall short is they try something, it doesn't work. And they like shrug their shoulders and say, oh man, that's shame that didn't work out. I failed my bit. It failed. Something failed, but they didn't fail. It's just that you have to keep twisting. It's a little bit like a Rubik's cube and not like a button that you press. Yeah. But there is a point where some things you have to give up and call it. It didn't work. Let's move on to the next thing. Have you struggled with that yourself personally to decide, Oh, should I pivot this thing I'm doing and try and double down and do it differently? Or should I just drop this and move on? to the next business idea to test. Yeah. Yeah, I have failed. I started uh, my my business now. It stemmed from my blog, which is writingfromnowhere.com. But writing from nowhere was the third blog I started. The first two failed. And I joined, um, I had someone invite me to be a co-owner of a consulting firm that they wanted to start. And that also failed. That failed in 2000, I think 18 or 19. So failure, yeah, I, I it's a very delicate balance of knowing when an idea is not working and when an idea is um, needs more work. I don't know how to I, I don't I don't I struggled with it with myself and I know if when I experience it again, I'll struggle with it again because it's hard. yeah, you don't really know when the what what the moment is. What's the right move? for you in this moment. Like the Dutch say, what's wisdom? That's an expression they have. And I feel like it's a very hard question to answer. What's wisdom in your own business? 
What's wisdom is a Dutch saying. Yeah, they say it. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Like whenever you're making decisions, that's like a Zen Cohen. Yeah, what's, yeah. What's wisdom? What's wisdom? Mike hmm. drop on the Dutch. I wish I can't remember the Dutch saying or the, the how the, in Dutch I would say that. I probably mispronounce it, so it's maybe better. <laughs> Have you learned Dutch? Yeah, some. I had to integrate into society, which in which uh, was four four Dutch language exams, a Dutch culture and society exam. That one was the hardest. Very difficult um, questions about like giving birth and buying a house and. Uh, Dutch values and the appropriate way to act in society. Very difficult. And then I had to support myself. I had to show that I wouldn't become a burden on the system when I had my business. So I just had to fill out some paperwork. I mean, that took like six months. (laughs) Another (laughs) perk though. I mean, that really helped me when I came to Norway was that I had a built-in income because there's a chicken and egg conundrum here when you immigrate you have to have a certain level of income but then nobody will hire you if you don't speak norwegian i mean that's a general statement but it's difficult so you know it helps for these visas and for things like that if that's part of your long term i I was wondering if the exam had a question like when you are going from one hospital room to another to get a new test do you a go naked or b go in a gown (laughs) we all know the answer to that question now um (laughs) (laughs) We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press. But I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago. And immediately I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years, I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks, so they also make an exceptional gift. Thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever zero to travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me, Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Now, back to the show. You mentioned being having to be entrepreneurial, uh, but you have a section on employment versus self-employment. Do you still think that you have to be entrepreneurial even in, in a way, even if you are employed? Yes. I think being entrepreneurial is more of a, a way that you, maybe a mindset, that you're always trying to um, 
not see things as a given, maybe. That's how kind of I would I would describe this for myself. That if you need like if you need to be entrepreneurial, say you're a coder, but you're employed for like 40 hours a week salaried, your role could go away. Your role could be downsized, your role could change radically. I think that people still need to have the attitude that they should still stay. I don't know, on their toes makes it sound negative maybe, but they need to be prepared because a lot of people, some people that I interviewed, they talked about people being getting fired, like someone who uprooted and moved to Medellin, Colombia, and then their job fired them the first week. Uh, you, In order to kind of build in that stability for yourself, you need to be agile. And I don't think anybody's agile without staying educated, trying to have good contacts, a good network. These are the things that you fall back on. And I, I profiled a couple other people, Rachel Story. I think she's been on the podcast maybe. Um, and she talked about, I interviewed her in the book and shared her story of losing her job and how she had built in all of these like safety nets for herself. Because if you're traveling full-time or just traveling a lot, you need to provide yourself the security that you're lacking and maybe it's not job security. Maybe, you know, you don't have access to the same job security as other people, perhaps, or income stability, maybe. You know, there's a lot of uncertainties in your life whenever you're abroad traveling instead of at home in a nine to five. So you need to provide some of that lack of support for yourself. And I think that comes from an entrepreneurial mindset. Mm, gotcha. You know, any question we ask here, there's going to be a variety of examples. There's going to be people that have pulled off X, Y, or Z, people that haven't, all the people in between. But generally speaking, based on your experience, based on your interactions with other nomads that you've encountered, your experience writing the book, have you seen more success? Uh, what, okay, well, that's another question. What does success mean? It means a lot of different things to a lot of people. Like for one person, it might mean making $1,000 a month so I can live in Southeast Asia and afford an apartment and whatever. And for another person that might look completely different. But if you're talking about travel, making a reliable income, let's say success is being able to sustain the lifestyle that you want in some way, shape or form, regardless of the income amount, because that's going to vary. Do you see more success from people who have set themselves up before they've actually bought a plane ticket in terms of a job or uh, starting a business and, and making sure it's making money before they leave versus uh, doing it on the road? This is uh, always a big question for a lot of people. I mean, you just talked about the person that got fired from their job after being in Medellin for a couple of days. So of course, they're, they're, all these things can happen, right? But we're having a general discussion here on this. And I was just curious what your advice would be for somebody who's in that debate. I would get your income going before you leave. I'm not saying that people don't make it work and that you couldn't make it work. And I kind of always enjoy the free fall. Like whenever something goes wrong, I always feel a bit of a rush because there's that pressure to make it happen. And that's a bit of a, it's a, yeah, an adrenaline moment that can be very powerful. But I think that if you have the choice, you should set yourself up before. I'm not saying that you need to make you know, have $25,000 in savings before you can go, but you should, I, I would recommend, yeah, having some income figured out or at the very least, like building your social network on like building your network on LinkedIn can be really powerful to bring in more business or opportunities. That's huge. Having those steps going, I would not start from scratch. doesn't mean that it couldn't work out, but if you have the time to plan, you're going to be better off for making a plan. 
And for you, was it the Pinterest stuff? We haven't gotten into that yet. You were doing Pinterest management and and things like that. How did you, was that how it started for you? You mentioned the freelance writing too. I'm not sure if it was a combination of things, both of which, by the way, are service-based businesses, which are, in my opinion, the easiest way to get started because you can just say, I offer this thing and it can be hourly or project basis, but you don't need even a website or anything to kind of get started. But yeah, just uh, would love to hear your thoughts on your personal experience. Yeah, I'm a big advocate for service-based businesses. And that's how I started. I started freelance writing and it was regular. It was like a role that was Monday to Friday and I wrote four articles a day. They were short. Wow. Um, it was not a good... I, mean, I can barely write a newsletter in a day. It was not a good role. I, I will not say the company or... I, I mean, I'm not saying anything bad about anyone, but it was a, the wrong fit for me, for sure. It was like, take a very complex topic like uh, this big news headline and boil it down into 250 words. And um, I think it's a bit dangerous to do that to like oversimplify news. So it was not the right fit for me. And I did that for a while. And then I quit that role and picked up some odd jobs doing graphic design, which was another skill set I already had. And um, there were times I just reached out to people to like old teammates or mentor. And I said, you know, I really need some work right now. And people would say, okay, you know what? I can, th I can think of someone who's looking for a designer. So having like a network of people for me was really valuable. And then I got into Pinterest management a while later. So I have to actually filled the gaps with some location dependent work. Like whenever I moved to the Netherlands, I worked as a nanny because I couldn't get work like you. I, I didn't speak Dutch. I couldn't, I was not eligible for employment here really with that. And I started nannying because I did that for years whenever I was younger in college. And uh, that was a really rough chapter. But I did that Monday to Friday, or not Monday, a couple of days a week in the mornings or the afternoon. And on the way to and from nannying, as I was building up my website, writing from nowhere, that I was determined to turn into a business. I didn't have a, didn't have a clear image of what that was going to look like. I listened on the way there and back. I listened to podcasts while the kids were napping. I was listening to podcasts about online business building, entrepreneurship. I was listening to Location Indie, tapping in zero to travel as well. I was always listening to podcasts, trying to be just like a sponge and trying to use that like mo those moments of work that wasn't fueling my dream, trying to like win some of it back for me. But I, I mean, you hit points where I had to make enough money to pay rent, so I did whatever I had to do. And then I built up my business and yeah, it was kind of a random catalyst where I became very good at Pinterest. So Pinterest drives website traffic to blog website traffic for bloggers. And I was good, became good at it. And then somebody asked me on Facebook if I would run their account for them. They sent me a Facebook message. We were chatting a little bit. And then she said, would you, could I pay you to run my account? And that was where the Pinterest leg of my business was born. And then within a month, I was able to quit nannying and just live off of that. Yeah. Wow. And that's always going to be, the bell should be going off. If somebody messages you and says, hey, can I pay you to do this? Then obviously there's going to be demand for it, right? Yeah. The, uh, do, you, do you still offer that service? Is that something you still do or? I only, I offered it for four years, uh, three or four years. And now I only offer it as a part of bigger packages. So um, I do ghostwriting for people and that's a part of it. And I also am a freelance writer for like GoDaddy and HubSpot. That's some of my very regular work. And I still do a bit of oddball things. My business is a bit of a it's a bit multi, very multi-hyphenate, but my skills are very clear. My skills are graphic design, writing, and SEO. And to me, I think identifying the things that you're good at can help people 
if they're trying to develop a business idea or a freelance idea and they're not sure like what the job title is because it's very obscure. Like people pay you to be their friend online and no one wakes up one day, I think, and says, I want to be a friend for hire friend. But maybe you'll say, I'm, I love talking to people and identify your skills and then drill down. How do I make money doing this? I think that kind of reverse engineering it can be really helpful. What are your top three tips for Pinterest success? Oh, um, make pins that look like enough like other pins. Uh, make them look like they belong on Pinterest. Um, don't just make something that you think looks pretty. Um, optimize it with keywords in the description and uh, make a lot of content. If you have a lot of like pages on your website, blog posts, recipe pages, product pages, you are a prime candidate for Pinterest. Is it still a thing worth looking into? Like who's, I don't hear much about Pinterest nowadays. It's a big opportunity. Yeah. I mean, I get tons of traffic to my website still. I haven't published most of the pins driving traffic are from like 2019, 2020. Um, your work lives on for a long time on Pinterest. It's a long, long lifespan. Yeah. I think it's still very worth it, but I would say don't invest unless you have at least 30 pages on your website that you would want to drive traffic to. Like if you're a new blogger with three blog posts, you're not going to get a load of traffic from Pinterest. <laughs> Can you talk about lifestyle deflation? Ooh, yeah, I love that. I love the topic. So it's really helpful whenever you're gearing up to save for traveling or if you just are going through like financial hardships on the road. So before you start traveling, deflate your lifestyle costs, cancel your memberships that you don't use enough, you know, give up your car if you can, get a get a roommate or housemate if you need to, just find ways to cut back on your weekly spending. And then I think lifestyle deflation is great if you're like like uh, someone like Rachel Story who we just talked about, you know, she lost her job very spontaneously. And those are moments to deflate your lifestyle costs and immediately spend less money. Immediately, like if you can have the amount of money going out every week and month, then you can sustain yourself for a lot longer. Those kind of uh, like pockets of instability become a lot less scary whenever you have the skills to say, well, we're going to spend $5 a day on groceries now. We're going to scale way back. Uh, it's nice to have those skills. It's a, I think it's a skill to be able to live off of a little bit of money. It could come down to house sitting as well. It's not always like we're going to go camping and live on the side of the road. You can house sit in gorgeous houses. Obviously you have your book on house sitting. Um, there's a lot of opportunity that is not as grungy as it sounds. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I love the idea of just along those lines and what you said before when you were in the nannying stage, which sounds like that was a tough period for you, but it was about doing what it takes to kind of keep things going. And although that was location dependent, it's still part of the journey. You're on the journey, you're here, you know, life takes you to the, um, to the Netherlands and then you end up doing this thing and then you have to do what you have to do. And kind of in the moment, that's not always the sexy thing. Right. And I think that what you were talking about earlier in on TikTok or whatever is this, you see a lot of the sexy part of it on social media, but there of course is the reality, you know, nobody's doing the TikTok on, well, I'm nannying now and this is where I'm at in this journey. I mean, I guess they are and they, you know, maybe there's, there's more of that than I'm aware of, but it's uh, I just wanted to bring it up because it's an important thing to highlight. You didn't give up your nomadic lifestyle just because you 
had to start nannying for a period of time. You just use that as a way to kind of get to the next thing. Yeah. And I saw it very clearly as um, a a necessary step to get off the ground in the Netherlands. And I had an option there because I have a university degree. I worked in marketing and PR. I could have tried to find a job in the Netherlands. I actually went to a job agency. I could have cried. I went to a job agency once out of desperation. And the man there said, you want to work in English and marketing? And he said, move to Amsterdam. And then he said, have a good day. And pretty much like closed the door. He literally didn't even let me in the building. He talked to me on the sidewalk. And Dutch people are kind of famous for their directness. So uh, it's not maybe as rude as it sounds. But I, I think I did cry, actually. I'm not entirely sure. It was hard to hear. And I I felt like I could work really hard to get my life started back in that of like the my career going, but I knew that I would end up in the exact same position I was in in Chicago where I wanted more freedom. And I knew I was going to just, I'm, that was me taking a very long detour to get back on the same road. So I chose to make very little money nannying. It was not a great, it was not a great time. Uh, it was really, really challenging. The kids didn't speak English, but their parents wanted them to be exposed to English. And uh, there's nothing like a three-year-old screaming at you in another language. <laughs> Uh, it was a lot. It was stressful. Yeah. And that period went on for a while, but it was very much worth it. But had I not, uh, yeah, I mean, I could very easily quit and said it didn't work out. And people always ask me, how's your little blog? Are you still doing that? Like, that's all my life is about right now. (laughs) Uh, people didn't quite get it, which was fine. I also didn't try to explain. I wasn't, uh, I I don't know. It wasn't something I was really excited to tell people. Like, I have a website that makes no money, actually costs me money. And someday it's going to pay for me and my partner to travel full time. Because whenever I said that, people, I did say it out loud sometimes. You know, I would tell people that. And uh, the responses were never very nice. It was kind of always like, well, good for you. Oh, bless your heart. You know, it didn't feel like a good thing because it looked like it was never going to happen to them. And, it felt like that sometimes to me, but I didn't, uh, I would kind of refuse to fail, which worked out. <laughs> Do you believe in saying things out loud like that in order to manifest them, let's say, for lack of a better term? Yes. To give you the power to kind of, <laughs> yeah. To some people, Why? well, I think it's good to make it known to the people closest to you. Um, like, I think that's important to say, like, so there's people, your big goals. Yeah. So people understand you too. Like, imagine like the closest person, like, I don't know, a sibling or a parent and you're working on this big thing that means everything to you and they don't know anything about it. I think that it's important to tell people in that way to share pieces. Cause otherwise, if you're building a business, it looks very, uh, it doesn't always look like it's very promising from the outside. And I think if you want, if you want support from people, you, they need to see where you're headed, where you're trying to head. But if people are going to be critical, I don't advise sharing your plans. Same thing with traveling. If you're going to become a digital nomad, don't share your plans with people who are going to be critical. I don't think it's like I remember telling somebody in my office what I was doing after I'd put in my notice. I gave a month of notice period. So I had a lot of conversations in that month and people were saying, now you're going to regret that someday whenever your retirement fund is empty and you can't retire. Like, well, Bill, I'm 23. So I think I'll live. (laughs) Um, that's not advice that mattered to me. But if I had believed it, I could have been scared and thought I better go put in my money in my 401k. That's more important. Sure. sure. Uh, based on 
your experience, what are some of the types of businesses working now where you see other people in the digital nomad community community have a success? You mentioned service-based businesses, which includes a broad spectrum of businesses. Are there any other ones that you wanted to highlight? Mm, Service-based is the best. Um, I don't think that there's anything faster to get started. Um, I've seen a lot of getting started at least. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also very scalable because you can become specialized and then you are paid more and freelancers generally make more money than if you were doing that role. Something I learned through a lot of research for the book is that um, there's a lot of research about why freelancers are paid more. And um, it can be very fruitful, I should say. I I said that to make the point, it's not always like you're just getting by as a freelance writer, but your rates can go very high. Like You can really climb the ladder. And that's definitely the best business model that I've seen. I've seen people try with dropshipping and product production. I've met people who have tried with that. Real estate is also that you have to be farther along in your journey to be ready to invest in real estate. But I've seen met people, met nomads with that income source that's really profitable. What is some of the other advice in the book that we haven't talked about that you think is worth highlighting that's actionable or? Mm, That's a great question. Um, I would say uh, if you feel like you want to travel more uh, to join like get meet people who are interested in travel, like join now, even if you're at home, like find a way to feel connected to travelers, because I think that you'll feel, I don't know, kind of start to internalize the sense of belonging. That you're connected maybe, here, right? Yeah, In this community, we have exactly. this, right? <laughs> yeah, this is step, yeah, this is exactly right. And uh, if you can meet people in person, like going to meetups locally, or I started volunteering at the hostel in downtown Chicago after work. Oh, really? Yeah, I feel oh, like- that's cool. I feel uncool. I didn't feel like I belonged to the club because I had never really been abroad. And um, I felt like a big newbie, like a big, like very- gullible. Uh, like I asked someone for help. They offered me help with Spanish at work. And uh, his name was Victor. And he had lived in Spain. And he's like, have coffee with me tomorrow. And I'll teach you to say a few things. And I'm a vegetarian. And instead of teaching me how to say, I don't eat meat, he taught me how to say, I only eat meat. <laughs> and then he said, you're taking this all too seriously. You'll be fine. But I felt kind of desperate to get in. So that's a piece of advice I have for people. If you feel like you're nervous about meeting people or making friends, like find a way, listen to the podcast, you know, listen every week and join in to these kind of spaces and sharpen your skills right now. Like go on LinkedIn, build your network. Those are so high value. And once you have like digital skills that are up to date and having a network on LinkedIn, I think is the one of the best places to gather that. Uh, that is like worth, I interviewed someone who called it his, his friendship for a 1k instead of his friendship for a 1k. That was his net, his professional network and how much money mm. they bring in and opportunity. Mm. I love that you volunteered at a hostel before you had traveled overseas just to get around it and, and scope it out. I was nervous. <laughs> That's all I can yeah. say. <laughs> That's so cool. I mean, That's such a great idea. You know, if you're able to locally to just, get in the environment, like you said. I mean, you can get into it here in the podcast, but then if you want to get into it IRL, there are ways to do that. I think that's just a, such a great example. And I can imagine, yeah, it must have just been, oh, it's so fresh to just not know anything really about hostile life and to go in and, and be behind the counter. Yeah, I was answering <laughs> questions, which is also quite funny because I'd only lived in Chicago for like 11 months. 
And people ask me all these questions and I'm like, well, let's see, let's get out your map and draw. We are here. You gotta get a Chicago deep dish pizza. (laughs) Yes, directing everybody to the closest deep dish pizza. You gotta go see the blues. (laughs) (laughs) I had like four go-to recommendations. Um, What were they? I mean, it was a volunteer. It was uh, Kingston Mines, I think. Yeah, I love Kingston Mines. Yeah, it's the best place. Best place for live music. Um, I just sent people to the closest deep dish pizza place. And, um, like Millennium Park was really close and there's like a lot of free music in Millennium Park. It's not just about the bean or whatever, you know, Cloudgate as it's actually called. Uh, it's a really nice place to just hang out, especially like in the warmer months. And, uh, I used to organize outings where I would like take everyone to Kingston Mines on a Friday night. Amazing. (laughs) Yeah. I went to Kingston Mines in 98 because somebody I was on tour with, which was my very first promotional tour, like somehow knew about it. And so we went there and man, I was blown away just by the music and the environment. And we were there till like five in the morning. I was just going to ask you yeah, cause it's a live music until 5am. Like that's yeah. its claim to fame. Okay. Yeah. And it was, we were there, we closed it down. Oh, it's just the only incredible. Way to do it. I, I remember talking to some guy on the stage and watching these guitar players and just being like, these guys are incredible. Look at this guy. He's like, man, I know. It's so awesome. Yeah. Cause you're and a guitar then, like, player. Then the next song, he walks up and just rips even harder than the last guy. The guy I was just talking to, I'm like, whoa, okay. Like, you were really modest. That's cool. (laughs) Just a cool place. Uh, Sorry, bring me back. It's a good uh, walk down memory lane. And you could have jumped on stage, right? You're an electric guitar player. Oh, no, no, no. I couldn't have jumped on stage. (laughs) Not with these guys. Uh, You know, my band, I've got seven people and I'm, I'm definitely the seventh man kind of hiding between Aww. behind the wall of talent. Uh, <laughs> that can't but be true. Uh, yeah, it was fun. Uh, really cool to see that. Um, on the travel side, I was going to ask you about navigating destinations. You know, one of the things about, it sounds like, you know, in a way, yeah, first world problems, right? Like you're traveling the world, you can go a- anywhere, let's say in terms of what's accessible for your passport and visas and stuff. But a lot of, digital nomads that are working online and earning a living have this flexibility to kind of travel around, but you kind of have to figure it out too, where you're going to go, how you're going to, how much you're going to time you're going to spend there, the visas that will allow it. This is a very big question because uh, everybody has different scenarios, you know, like you're married and you're, so you're going to a country that other people might not have to go to, but I'm just looking for maybe mindset tips here on this. Mm. I would say if you're seeking out your first destination, I'll look for contrast. I think that's a good mindset to have is that you want something different from what you have now. Um, like don't go from New York City to London. I would say you're going to be a little bit disappointed by that. Go from hot to cold or um, from like bustling to more like, uh, you know, remote. I think that that's a really big I think there's a big advantage to that, you know, and then whenever you're moving from place to place, yeah, it's very hard to say like, how far out do you plan in advance? Where do you go? We only plan out about a month in advance, but right now we don't have anything planned. We know we'll leave within the month. We'll leave for Turkey, um, over land. We're going to go there and yeah, we don't have a, that, that works for us, but that doesn't work for everyone. And uh, you have to adapt a lot, I think, be honest, like be able to look whatever you're tra- planning your travels, be able to look in the mirror and say, I'm kind of stressed out by the lack of plans. It's giving me anxiety. Then you need to put something on the calendar and booking an Airbnb for a month. I don't know if everyone knows this, but you get huge discounts for mo- a lot of places if you book for a month. 
Like I want to say I found a place, a rental in Lisbon, this gorgeous rental that was 25% of its normal monthly cost. Like it was normally like 2,600 euros and I found it for 500 euros if you got a book booked for a month. So if you feel like you need to slow down or find something new, like constantly be asking questions. I actually have a section of the book where I talk about the questions to ask whenever you're feeling unhappy. Like, is this speed not right for me? Do I need something easier? Do I need something more different? Like just by going to a country where you speak the language, you know, you can feel a lot of ease brought into that. Or maybe you're bored and you need to go somewhere that's more challenging. But if you can book for a month and kind of plan your travels out that way. I think most digital nomads prefer to take their time. Because we're, you know, if you're working 40 hours a week, then, you know, you don't need to be like, you're you're not going to be able to see as much as someone who's on vacation. It's going to take more time anyway. Yeah. So what does the next couple of years look like for you? I think? Right now we're looking for a home. So we're not sure we want to live in the Netherlands long term. And uh, we're just looking for a place that feels right. Uh, that's been our, that's our search right now. We're just drifting around. In another around. country? Yeah, in another country. So we're really... In well, the now EU? Potentially. We looked at Mexico because we... Well, we spent 10, 10 weeks in Mexico exploring that as a potential home. Uh, I don't think it's Mexico, but uh, it was hard to leave because we had such a lovely time. Minus some food poisoning. We got some pretty wicked food poisoning, um, which happens everywhere. Uh, yeah, so we're just looking. I don't know. We have like a list of countries that feel like maybe they could be home. And we're kind of exploring those strategically. And then just traveling, like we're not thinking about moving to Turkey, but we do want to go. And we all, it's always been very undreamed to go over land and follow part of the old Silk Road. So uh, the train just opened up from Bulgaria to Turkey. So now uh, we're going to go and go over land that way. And um, I don't know, Portugal is a pretty high contender. No one has anything bad to say about living in Portugal. <laughs> How is the... Uh traveling through the lens of we're trying to decide if this is a place we want to live. How does that change your decisions, your travel experience? Uh, we pay more attention to when things go wrong. I could maybe say like in Mexico, our rental broke, like the toilet broke, we arrived and the toilet didn't work. And then the next day, the water for the entire apartment shut up down and didn't work. So we're dealing with like the plump, we were dealing with plumbers and things that you wouldn't normally deal with as a, a tourist. Everyday and stuff. Everyday stuff. Yeah. And then seeing, uh, like, just going through that experience, like after three times that the plumber says he'll be there at noon and he doesn't show up at all. You're like, interesting. This might be a sign of what it's like to live. And you know, it all works out for people locally. But whenever you're not local, you feel friction at points where other people would think, well, that's just how it works. So we pay, I pay a lot of attention to those day-to-day things. And um, like just going, moving away from theoretical benefits, like you could say, well, uh, you know, Portugal has excellent infrastructure. It's wonderful. That's a theoretical benefit until you get to Portugal and you're trying to catch trains all over on a schedule and you say, oh, they were delayed. Like they, they weren't delayed in Portugal, but you know, if they were, oh, half those trains were delayed. I actually couldn't take them. And that's where you move from theoretical benefits to actual practical benefits. And that's the things that I look for whenever I'm thinking if this would be a nice place to live. And the feel to me, the, like the energy of a place is really important. Just seeing if people help, what are the locals like? Do they look at you? Some, you go some places and locals look at tourists like they, they don't want them there. 
And then sometimes places have like whole campaigns trying to keep tourists out. Sometimes it's not a feeling, it's a tangible, like in Amsterdam, they have a, called a stay away campaign to keep British men away of a certain age out of the city because they cause so much trouble. So just looking, how do people feel about foreigners? You know, that's like a feeling more than anything, but it's fascinating that you don't really worry about as a traveler, but home shopping is different. <laughs> what is one of your favorite destinations, energetically speaking? Oh, Mexico. Yeah. I love, I feel like you feel the energy, the buzz instantly. Like you walk out of the airport and you feel the buzz of Mexico. And I, I think it was quite similar. I've, I traveled overland from Mexico to Panama in 2017. So, and I think that's true of most of Central American countries, but there's something that I've not found in Europe or South America. I haven't found other places I've gone that buzz. Yeah. Amazing. Do we miss anything big? I don't think so. I feel like we talked we about everything. This was such a good conversation. I really enjoyed it. I'm glad that you did. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, you've read about yourself in the intro, Location Indie, in the book. Uh, I don't know if you had read that before, whenever you read the oh, book. Oh, yeah, but... yeah. Thanks for uh, putting Zero to Travel and the, the rest in the book. I really appreciate that. That was very nice to read. It's been really cool to follow your journey. And you said this was a full circle moment for you, but it, it is for me as well to see you've written this book and now you're out there paying it forward, kind of just having the honest conversations and sharing tips, advice, strategies to help people better understand this lifestyle and also giving them a bit of a, a framework to attain it. Right. So yeah, much, much appreciated again. Uh, yeah. Let, let everybody know where to find you and the book and all that good stuff. Yeah, everyone can find me at writingfromnowhere.com. And you can send if everybody wants to send me an email, my email is just Kayla at writingfromnowhere.com. And I'm sure in the show notes, the book will be there. Um, there's actually several books on Amazon with the same title. <laughs> Everyone's going after that keyword, how to be a digital nomad. So uh, <laughs> the, the link will be the best way to find that. Right on. Thanks, Kayla. Thank you, Jason. Stay in touch. It was so fun. Thank you. Take care. Bye. have it thanks to kayla for stopping by the show that was a fun one hope you enjoyed it and don't forget to keep tuning in as we continue choosing a life of travel week in the next episode it is a hard thing to do to build a life of travel where you can travel full-time but also in some ways easy because it starts simply. It can start simply. And that's what I'm going to share with you right now. An easy way to kickstart a life of travel is to take one trip. It really is that simple. That's how it started for me. I have had personal experience with that, getting this first travel job and getting out there and realizing, wow, this is, this is cool. I can work and travel. That's one way to do it. And then when I took that solo backpacking trip through Europe, that was my transformative trip where I was overseas on my own for the first time, taking other opportunities off my plate, not taking jobs or anything and really prioritizing travel and then starting to hear the stories about people that have been traveling full time and starting to realize as the bells were going off, wow, Choosing a life of travel, I mean, there's a reason why I, I used the action verb there, choosing, because you can choose it. I started to realize this is something I can keep doing. A trip doesn't have to be a one-off thing. And when you commit to just one trip and kind of start thinking about it as, hey, 
this doesn't have to be a, a one-off thing. This doesn't have to be just, oh, it's my vacation and then it's over. Let me start choosing a life of travel. Let me start actively living in that way, actively adding travel into my life. It's It sounds like a small mindset shift, but it's actually huge and can really fill your life with a lot of travel, as, as we talk about here, filling your life with as much travel as you desire. Choosing travel and just taking that first trip and, and, and all the stuff I just mentioned, that's a, a way to do it. So if that's resonating with you, maybe maybe you want to plan something today. I don't know. Just throwing it out there. Okay. Before I let you go, a couple things. I do want to give a shout out to a listener in this community. Spencer, way to go. He's hitting the road. Got the subject. You've inspired me and now I have left. He said, hey, Jason, I'll read you the email here. It's official. I'm on the road. You were a big inspiration for this adventure. Found your podcast about a year ago. It's been a daily inspiration, helping me to mentally escape with you and your guests. Each new episode feels like my travel dreams become more and more realistic. Makes me feel less alone and strange for my wanderlust desires. You're certainly not alone with that. Uh, It goes on to say after college, about a year after college, started an office job that was only supposed to last six months. It has now been over 11 years at my company. While I feel supremely fortunate to be in my position for everything it has afforded me, I sometimes feel trapped. When I first started this job, I read, quote, Honeymoon with my brother, about two brothers who sold everything to travel. I intended to pay off my student loans before leaving to teach English in Korea, but the smaller expenses of life added up, and those dreams slipped further and further away. Then it happened. This summer, just weeks before his 65th birthday and expected retirement, my dad found a tumor. Thankfully, everything worked out and he is fine, but it scared me and I felt it felt like a wake up. It terrified me that you can work your entire life towards traveling and retirement and have it all taken away just on the cusp of really, quote, starting to live. And goes on to say, tomorrow's not promised. Thanks for some of the encouragement. I'm taking control today. He negotiated a, a way to work remotely for now and just, you know, more nice words about the pod. So anyway, Spencer, congratulations. And that's what I talked about at the top, not uh, being wary of the cusp. He mentioned his dad, you know, on the cusp of really, quote, starting to live. We don't want to live on the cusp of starting to live. We want to live. We want to live now. And this email served as a reminder. It was, a, it was an opportunity to share th- that with you and also just give uh, Spencer some some love and really these community stories I mean this is a community powered show so I love sharing these stories drop me an email jason at zero to travel.com you can leave me a voicemail let me know your story so I can share it here because I know sharing stories I know hearing other stories uh, inspires me to do things that I want to do and I, I think the stories hopefully inspire people in this listening community as well. But I need the stories to share. So please drop me a line. Feel free to share them and I will share them here. And we can keep that circle of uh, positivity flowing here on the pod. Okay. Let me, uh, you know, I haven't been in the quote drawer for a while. I'm going to pull out a random quote. Let's see what serendipity brings to us today. Where are all my little quote things? By the way, these quotes come from... This wisdom of the East calendar that I get every year, my mom's kind enough to send it over from from the USA. It's like ten bucks. It's a ripoff calendar. So, if you like these kind of quotes, then you can get one for yourself. Okay, uh, let's see this one from Lao Tzu: Violence, even well intentioned, always rebounds upon oneself. Okay, that's an interesting one. I, I didn't expect violence to be part of the quote. Let me see if I can. Let me just pull one more. What do we have to lose here, right? Wisdom from the East. Okay. 
Here we go. A spiritual person is vast like an ocean, but very mighty, very powerful. That's Yogi Bajan. Okay. Two quotes for you from the quote drawer. I'll let you go now. Tune in for the next episode. Subscribe, follow the pod if you haven't done that, so you can continue on with Choosing a Life of Travel Week. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Peace and love to you and yours. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.